Hello and welcome to The Bunker Daily. I am your host, Alex Andreu. Shame can do enormous damage. Shame is painful and disabling. And shame has often been loaded onto people with some kind of escape from shame being simultaneously peddled. This frequently involves a major and damaging political, economic or even religious manipulation. It is tempting to conclude from all this that shame is something we would be much better off without. But perhaps shame is like rain or toilet paper. You don't miss it until it's gone. Those are the words of my guest today from his new book, Shame, The Politics and Power of an Emotion. He's a political economist and professor at the London School of Economics. He's also a recovering journalist. Welcome to the bunker, David Keane. Thank you very much, Alex. And I enjoy the description of recovering journalist. <laughs> David, was there a real-life catalyst that made you want to write a book about essentially the weaponization of shame? Well, I think it was partly the, you know, my experience of the civil war in Sierra Leone and the way that shame seemed to be such an integral part of the violence there. You know, really extreme humiliation being inflicted by fighters from various factions. Uh, and that had some kind of relationship, I think, to the, to the feeling of shame, neglect and humiliation that they themselves often experienced. And they seem to be wanting to pass it on to, to others. You know, also the manipulation of shame there in terms of um, forcing people into atrocities against their own communities. And so making it hard or impossible for them to return from a rebel faction to those communities. So this was something that really I became very kind of gripped by mm -hmm. and trying to look at the relationship between emotional factors in war and some of the sort of selfish interests like the diamonds and so on. And then I suppose later on with the war on terror, shame seemed to be a big driver in a way of the, mm. the war on terror. And then when Trump came along, I think my interest was revived again because of his pretty systematic and I think in a way very clever manipulations of shame and shamelessness. Psychologists, depending on sort of whose research one reads, they tend to classify shame in either four or 12 different categories. Did you find broad groupings of different kinds of shame also in your research into this sort of political shame? I never got as far as the 12 categories, but I think, uh, you know, one important distinction that I was drawn to was the distinction between shame around weakness and shame around harm that you're inflicting. And actually shame around harm that you're inflicting on the whole, I think is a fairly productive and useful kind of shame. Uh, but shame around weakness, you know, particularly when it gets tangled up with ideas around masculinity uh, or with particular historical cultures that, you know, produce a kind of sensitivity to national weakness or national shame or perceived shame. You know, that type of shame tends to be, I think, very destructive. And when you look at some of the more dangerous characters that are around in the world today, and I'm thinking of Trump, but also to a certain extent of Putin, you know, they do seem to have a lot of shame around weakness. 
uh, and not enough, as it were, around the infliction of harm. So I think sometimes when, when people have been, you know, when they have a really strong aversion to shame or humiliation, it leads to this desire to impose shame or humiliation on other people. And you can kind of construct a politics around that that is surprisingly appealing for large numbers of people who perhaps themselves have a feeling of shame for economic and for historical reasons, you know, whether that's in terms of their own life or their own country or some combination of the two. You look at the use of the word shame. And the graph is quite striking. I mean, I love a good graph, but this one is a doozy. Um, one would have to go back to the Victorian 1850s to find similar frequency of usage. And you find that much of this is because of social media. How has a tool heralded as one of liberation become the complete opposite? Yeah, well, I think it's interesting that these kind of cycles of mutual shaming that we get on social media, they are, first of all, quite profitable because they keep people locked into social media. Um, you know, famously, people get a lot of the opinions that they already have fed back to them, which produces, I think, or contributes to a sense of self-righteousness. There's a lot of identity politics now as well, where people are in a way defining themselves in relation to some other group or some other set of beliefs that they wish to shame. The act of shaming, whether it's on social media or in, in other spheres, I think tends to be pretty ineffective in changing people's behavior unless there's some kind of shared set of values there or it's within a family. So you know, that instinct to shame is there. The shame kind of doesn't tend to change the behavior of the people that you're shaming, often on social media. And then you kind of think, well, okay, I better shame them some more, especially because they probably have turned around and started shaming you. So we get stuck on these kind of cycles of shaming. I couldn't fail to notice that the line began to curve upwards in the late 80s and early 90s. So not all can be laid on the feet of of the, the internet. And I was wondering whether there is maybe something generational there. Like, could it be that confronted with ultra-liberal 60s and 70s parents, a, a puritanism is a form of rebellion for millennials almost? It just seems that, you know, the liberation of the 60s and 70s was all about no shame, N not in a negative, shameless way, but in a way of being freed from what other people expect from you. And this seems like a, a sort of slight generational backlash almost to it. Yes, I mean, that was sort of the ideal, wasn't it? That there wouldn't be any shame around at least sex. But there would be, as it were, an increased amount of shame, perhaps around violence. And so sort of make love, not war. Yeah, there probably was a bit of a, particularly with, with uh, AIDS and fear of AIDS, I think, um, you know, there, was, there were many different blows to that ideal, I suppose, of removing shame from large parts of human life. Um, and we do seem to be very much into something else 
now where people yes. are as we were, <laughs> determined to shame their political opponents and kind of hoping somehow that that's going to to work but i think it's it's doing more for them in the short term than it is constructively politically especially pertinent now i think with uh, israel hamas um what's going on there shame really seems to be deployed as a, a a very weaponized tool in that uh, debate outside, sort of internationally. Um, I recently interviewed Robert Peckham uh, on almost a companion book <laughs> on how fear is deployed by politicians in the service of various causes. And he finds that often that is in the service of good causes. Did you find that? Is there a positive case, as it were, to be made for shame in some in some cases? I think there is a positive case to be made for it. I mean, if you look at uh, Human Rights Watch and Amnesty and so on, uh, they are very much in the business of trying to shame governments for their human rights abuses. A lot of the work that I've done about people uh, making money out of war, making money out of famines, is, I think, implicitly trying to use shame and the documentation of human rights abuses to improve behavior. You know, and so we hope that bringing these abuses to light uh, is going to work often through a mechanism of shame. So I think there is that possibility. And if a government, as it were, adheres to a set of values from which it has temporarily departed, or an individual does the same, and you can shame them in a way that's not humiliating, that appeals to values that they actually have, and you yourself as a shamer have some kind of moral credibility, then I think we're in a situation where shame can actually work to a certain extent. But very often in the real world, as you know, the shamer lacks moral credibility for various reasons. There's an element of humiliation in the shaming. The shared values, in a way, are not there. And the act of shaming then becomes, in a way, a political resource, which a government on the receiving end of that shaming can deploy, you know, so they say, for example, I'm the government of Sri Lanka, you're shaming me for my human rights abuses, but you are the people that colonized my country, or you are the people that invaded Iraq, or whatever it may be. And you can actually build a political discourse and a political constituency to some extent around that hostility to, to, to unjustified shaming as you see it, you know. Yeah, as someone who covers politics, I, I cannot tell you how frequent the use of I will take no lectures from you on X is when you're talking about adversarial parliamentary politics, which is exactly what you're describing. Now, as I highlighted at the top, all this doesn't mean that a lack of shame is a great thing, and you describe in the book many examples of shamelessness being just as destructive. But it seemed to me that the most toxic cocktail was shame being manipulated by a shameless individual or group. And I want to zero in on a couple of salient examples. Let's start with Trump, to whom you devote two chapters. How do shame and shamelessness interact in his case? 
Yeah, I think it's a great example. There's a promise, I think, from Trump of a of a, an escape from shame. You know, part of it is making America great again, giving conspicuous respect to his uh, to his supporters. There's also a kind of a very conspicuous shamelessness from Trump, where he kind of advertises uh, bad aspects of his personality mm. and says that and sort of proclaims that they're just making him more and more popular. And this, of course, is, is enraging for his opponents. But it is a real phenomenon. And I think what he's been able to do in a way is to offer people a kind of a vicarious escape from shame through his own shamelessness. And part of it is just saying, well, you know, however bad you may be, I'm actually worse. And people love <laughs> me for me. You know, people love me for it. I'm more popular than ever. And we see that now with the multiple legal actions against Trump, you know, where he says, well, you know, this is just testament to how well I'm doing in the polls and how determined my political opponents are to bringing me down. And he's very good at sort of saying, well, they're not just trying to shame me. They're trying to shame you as my supporters. And I will not tolerate this. You know, he was very good at that in relation to what Hillary said about the the basket of deplorables and so on. So he he knows what he's doing. And this is exactly where Hochschild's um, thesis weaves in, right? Because the idea is that uh, the American dream, as it were, which was never arguably achievable, but it's become such a millstone round ordinary people's necks such a, a humiliation not being able to fulfill that American dream that they were longing for someone to come along and say, it's okay, it's not your fault. They, they won't let you. Well, I think the American dream has become harder and harder to realize with the surging inequality that we've seen in America. And of course, if you tell people that if they try hard enough, they can make it, the logical corollary of that is that if you don't make it, you are not trying hard enough. <laughs> yeah. And this is something that Hannah Arendt detected even in Germany after the First World War. You know, this idea that people would blame themselves individually for some larger scale economic misfortune like inflation or mass unemployment. And then if you could come along to those people and say, well, I'm going to release you from this shame by scapegoating, by rebuilding our national greatness, uh, and perhaps by a conspicuous example of shameless behavior, uh, it's, it is a powerful cocktail. The other example I want to spend a, a bit of time on is Brexit. You talk about the reversing of shame, often involved with this kind of populism, the you're not laughing now trope. Tell me a little bit about this, because it really struck a chord. Yeah, I mean, that was kind of a farage, talking to the, the European Parliament and saying, basically, you laughed at me when I initially pushed for Brexit, but now, you know, we've had this referendum and you're not laughing now. And the, the, the form of words is surprisingly, obviously there's a huge gulf between Farage and uh, Nazism, but 
the the form of words is surprisingly similar to what um, to what Hitler said about you know the Jews were laughing at him and they're not laughing now and Trump himself has used a very similar forms of words invoking the laughter of his opponents and saying now he has silenced that laughter with his victories and so on so that is an interesting sort of observation or, or parallel and I think with Brexit. The leavers did do a pretty good job, as it were, of kind of convincing the public that this was a kind of a subordination to Brussels. That Britain was kind of lacked autonomy. It was almost a kind of a colonization of a former colonizer, and then hyping up the the threat of immigration as well. You mentioned fear and so on was part of that. And then when the vote was, uh, when people actually voted to to leave by a small majority, there was a huge amount of sort of mutual shaming between the two sides, especially I think of the leavers. You know, they were ignorant, they didn't know their own interests, they were racist and so on, and all those elements were actually there. But I think for people who voted leave, uh, a lot of times it confirmed people's worst fears. You know, that they were in a way being shamed. They weren't being taken seriously. Their views were being, were seen as outside the mainstream, outside what was acceptable. So I think the Brexit vote in some ways was a big FU to the establishment. And when the establishment, as, as it was perceived to be, turned around and said, well, this was ignorance and this was racism, it actually in a way confirmed many people's opinion of, uh, of that system. So I think, you know, shame was pretty systematically manipulated by Johnson in particular with this, uh, you know, talking about the, they're trying to regulate our condoms. They're trying to put nappies on our donkeys. They're regulating the size of our cucumbers. It's all very phallic imagery. And you write directly, and I quote, that in Brexit as in Trumpism, concerns about masculinity blended neatly and dangerously with a sense of hurt imperial pride. How important is gender here? The older I get, I think gender in a way is more and more, uh, more and more important in, in, in war and in the manipulations of shame. I mean, just that idea that you can uh, provoke people into violence by saying that they're, that they're weak within a certain culture that equates masculinity with strength, uh, you know, that is pretty incendiary stuff. And James Gilligan, you've done a lot of work with violent criminals in America, finding that, uh, you know, a particular culture of masculinity produces really extreme violence when individuals, and they're nearly always males, have been subject to extreme humiliation in their childhood. And then in the present day, any small provocation is enough very often to provoke them into extreme violence. And that I think has a lot to do with masculinity as well. You also talk of Johnson's um, shameless dissimulation. You describe it as an honesty about his dishonesty. Um, Dutch historian Rutger Bregman says that shamelessness has become a sort of superpower in politics, a, a secret weapon that ensures the worst possible people rise to the top. Is, is Johnson an example of that, do you think? 
Well, I'm not saying he's the worst possible person. I think he has certain uh, merits, and one of them is humor. I think uh, he turned out to be a pretty bad prime minister in a lot of respects. And I think he his fairly conspicuous shamelessness. There's a kind of a contempt for the truth in a way that he, I think, personified. And I think when he wrote, you know, two uh, arguments or letters, one of them was for Brexit and one was against, it showed, you know, his lack of belief, really, his lack of integrity. The fact that people didn't really hold that against him for a long time is, I think, quite scary uh, and shows perhaps that we're, we're prepared to prioritize image over substance, at least until the point where you start holding parties in Downing Street in the middle of a pandemic. And then I think people thought, well, we're not going to forgive this guy any, any longer. And hopefully with Trump, there comes a point where people will not forgive any <laughs> We've been saying that for a long time, David. Um, so it's interesting you should say that, though, because couldn't you also make a case that having risen to the top, it was actually Johnson's failure to keep his shamelessness in check that brought him down? I mean, when he was elected... He appeared unassailable. People were seriously talking of three terms. Only Boris could destroy Boris in a way and did. Doesn't that disprove the thesis, as it were? Doesn't it show that unchecked shamelessness can have a kind of Icarus effect? Yeah, well, I think, you know, there is such a thing as the real world in a way. We can enter into this magical world where everybody agrees that shamelessness is thrilling and you don't need practical policies. But eventually, as Hannah Arendt pointed out a long time ago, reality will catch up with you. You know, COVID caught up with Boris Johnson individually. COVID caught up with him on a massive scale. And the irresponsibility in the early weeks, in particular, I think, caught up with him. There is such a thing as reality, I think what is perhaps shocking is how people can insulate themselves from it for a really long period of time and construct this alternative world uh, in which shameless behavior actually serves you quite well for quite long. Let me ask you a final forward-looking question. What can we do? How do we ensure the right balance, as it were, of shame, shame and shamelessness in our public life? Because it would seem that that's, that's the implicit argument in your book, that you need some shame. So you need essentially a shared set of values outside which stepping incurs a penalty, as it were. How do we ensure the right balance, that we are neither paralyzed by rules, nor completely out of control. Yeah, I mean, I think it's very difficult, isn't it? You can't, as it were, will shared values into existence. But I think what, you know, where I would start would, would be a kind of recognition that political opponents, although they might hate each other and they might have been encouraged to hate each other and to shame each other, probably have a lot more in common 
than they realize. And in fact, in America, a lot of people were teetering between Sanders and Trump in terms of their political allegiance, you know, in terms of a protest vote, if you like. So I think actually, if you go to people and you're ready to have a conversation with them about their life and their values, you will find that people that you might regard as uh, beyond the pale have actually have a lot of going for them. They make a lot of sense in terms of the lessons they've drawn from their personal experience. They have a lot of idealism. They have people that they care about. They're perhaps defining their community differently from how you are. But to me, it starts with that, you know, the line from uh, Depeche Mode, you know, before you come to any conclusions, try walking in my shoes. So if we can actually have conversations with people, and find out where they're coming from in some genuine way, I think we actually make progress so much more quickly than if we revert, as it were, to this instinct for shaming them as quickly as possible, uh, which, which has become, in a way, a habit. It's become a profitable habit. Uh, it's become a habit of identity politics. Uh, and I think it's an unproductive habit. Professor David Keane, I can think of no better way to end this conversation than Depeche Mode. So thank you. Thank you for your time. Uh, thank you very much, Alex. Shame, the politics and power of an emotion is out now. Remember, if you get value from our work, you should support our work, and you can do so from as little as £3 a month on the funding platform Patreon. Just search for Bunker Podcast Patreon. I leave you with the words of John Milton in Paradise Lost. What malicious foe, envying our happiness and of his own despairing, seeks to work as woe and shame by sly assault, and somewhere nigh at hand watches, no doubt, with greedy hope to find his wish and best advantage, us asunder. This is Alexandreou in the bunker saying over and out. This episode of The Bunker Daily was written and presented by Alexandre. The managing editor was Jacob Jarvis, and the producers were Chris Jones, Liam Tate, and me, Alex Reese. Our direction by James Parrott. Music by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker is a Podmasters production.